Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about reducing screen time in their home. This is Melanie Hempy. How are you doing out there with all of your January New Year's resolutions? I know I have quite a list myself. Most of them include reading more books. So um, I'm so excited to share our guest today, um, the author of Breaking the Trance. But before I do that, let's talk a minute about um, our, our habits and our screen habits. And right about now, Christmas is over and you are probably still, um, I don't know, in some virtual classroom time. I know we are over here with our two teenagers and I get emails all the time. I'm, and when I say all the time, I mean at least one a day. So it really is all the time from parents who are saying, what do I do? I'm trying to go on a, on a fast here on a challenge or our, our detox that we have with great and strong. And my kids are on their, their, you know, laptops all day for school. So what I always tell parents is, um, they have to do their schoolwork. So that's fine. You keep that homework going on their screen. Those are not the screens your kids are going to get addicted to remember <laughs> or dependent on and that you need to really seriously think about taking the smartphones and the video games out of the equation for a while to let them reset their brains and reset some of their friendships. And so we have done this very successfully. We have our Facebook group, our Screen Strong Families Facebook group. We have a lot of parents in there. If you have not joined that group, please look at that group for support. But I just want to tell you, it is so exciting um, to raise teenagers without video games and social media. We have bypassed so many problems. As you know, I've had all the problems with my older kids. <laughs> so I learned the hard way. But today we are um, just so excited to have George Lynn join us. He is the co-author of Breaking the Trance, and he is going to help share with you um, and me today all these wonderful discoveries that he's made. And this book is our book of the month um, for our Screen Strong Book Club. So George, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. And the title of the book is Breaking the Trance, A Practical Guide for Parenting the Screen-Dependent Child. Love it. I just love it. This is one of my favorite books, which is why we're using it for our first book club of the year. <laughs> so George is going to share a little bit about his background, and then we're going to go through some real key points in the book. Um, he will be back on a Zoom uh, discussion at the end of the month with Cynthia, the other co-author. But for now, George, why don't we pick out some things that we want to talk about? First, tell us, how did you become passionate about this issue? Sure. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, by way of introduction, a mental health counselor in the Seattle, Washington area. I've been doing this work for about mm, 35 years or so. And um, <clears throat> Uh, back about 10 years ago, I started noticing a, I work with a lot of kids in my practice and noticing a kind of a, a trend in my uh, practice, which were, was that uh, parents were beginning to talk more about their kids' involvement with screen media. And uh, my specialty working with kids had been uh, with a neuropsych issue such as bipolar disorder, autism, ADHD. Uh, Tourette syndrome, and I noticed that um, um, sort of the, the the screen media use was becoming you know significant issues with these kids, mm -hmm. um, and I um, uh, as the years you know roll by, I uh, was aware that there it, it became difficult for me to use some of the the strategies that I had been using before the onset of, of uh, screen media and kids' lives. And um, so, I mean, my passion for writing the book was taking a look at, at what had been going on, you know, um, trying to discern the difference between when a problem in a kid's life, such as, you know, difficulty at school or mood issues at home or whatever it was, when that was related to um, a, a diagnosable syndrome, uh, I was used to that, or related to something else, um, and the the screen media piece became, you know, kind of immediately obvious to me. Mm -hmm. 
so, so you were kind of around in the the days like me. I was that mom in 2010 when my yes. son, you know, graduated from school, went to college, and video game his whole first year and dropped out. So I was that mom who um, could have ended up in your practice to say, "What's wrong with my kid?" And yes. and you and I together would have kind of thought, well, I don't know, we, we've got all these things going on. And could it be that this game is, is actually causing these problems? There's not a lot of research. We don't really know. So you were in on kind of that ground floor, like I was in the days um, when video game addiction was a foreign word, like no one, I mean, I, I remember talking to moms about it and they would be like, oh, Melanie, come on, you can't nobody can be addicted to a screen. That is crazy, you know? Right. Um, and so I'm gathering that you were on the other end, seeing it from a professional angle, looking at kids that were having all these strange problems with it. Right. Yeah. And, and also seeing parents feeling helpless with it, Melanie, uh, feeling like, what do I do with this? You know, on one hand, uh, when in the book, uh, we call the book breaking the trance because parents, really parents themselves were in a trance state around this, which, uh, and maybe just to describe what I mean by that, uh, when I talk about a trance state, um, I, I'm just referring to something known as a lot of social scientists would call this a schema, uh, sort of a unified belief state, you know, that we all pick up on these, um, uh, we all have these belief states. Imagine that we're all surrounded by a uh, kind of invisible bubble and in we, when information comes at us, we, you know, filter our reality through this bubble of our own belief state. Mm. And, you know, okay, so the belief state that a lot of parents were in, uh, they were unused to this. They, they really didn't know the impact of, uh, you know, how a video game or a social media application, whatever, could kind of twist kids' lives. So, but they would feel a lot of guilt. They wouldn't know what they were doing wrong. Um, they, when we talked about, when I initially started talking about how much time kids were spending on video games and stuff, uh, the parents would say, well, it's, you know, harmless fun and, uh, I don't see what the problem is really. And, or he doesn't really have too many friends in his life anyway. Right. Um, you know, that kind of thing. So it was, it's a sneaky, uh, quiet, um, erosion in a certain way that, that began happening in my practice. And I've written, I've written five books and I wrote a book, uh, I'll take a little bit of a, a, a detour here in a second for a second, but I wrote a book, uh, called survival strategies for parenting a child with bipolar disorder. And that came out in, in 2000 and that book and this book were similar in that I wrote that book because I was observing things in the population I, of kids I was working with that weren't in the literature, weren't out there. Wow. My bipolar book was actually the second book in the genre of, you know, serious mood disorders with little kids. And, and that was based on what I was seeing. And so Breaking the Trance, really, uh, we wrote that in 2015. That was the result of an accumulation of stuff that I was seeing in my counseling room and that Cynthia was seeing on the road, you know, as a uh, um, tutor who delivers services in people's homes. So we, yeah. we sort of came together on this and began seeing these patterns. And, wow. and that's sort of how the book evolved. Well, and, you know, I was that parent back then and apparent now a little bit a little bit smarter now i guess after all these years of research but um i was that parent just like you were saying who said but this isn't really hurting him he's not getting in trouble he's not yes drinking he's not doing drugs yes i mean you know isn't this okay since he's not doing all these things and what we're going to talk about today is um, in chapter two, let's, let's unpack this next about what really was going on. Cause actually my son was in a whole lot of trouble and it was a, a real dangerous place for him to be, even though, even though I thought he was safe at home. Um, I think that's what trips up moms and dads in our blind spot, George, as you know, the parents have in our biases, um, and our kind of social conformity around this, um, 
that's kind of a villain in this story. <laughs> yes, it is. It's so hard to get past that. But let's jump into to chapter two. I, I mean, I love the title, first of all. You nailed the title on every chapter. So thank you very much. Um, love you. it. Um, Brains Awash in Adrenaline. What Overclocking the Brain Does to the Bodies, Minds, and Nervous Systems of Screen-Dependent Children. Oh, my goodness. I love this title because you just nail, and you're very blunt about it, and you just nail the problem. So explain what overclocking the brain means. What does that okay. mean? Okay. Okay. Well, so I'm not a, <clears throat> a doctor, but I'm... Um, you know, I study doctors and study the research that they, they presented on this. And basically, a lot of it comes down to the term overclocking. You know, over those of you who uh, work a lot with computers know that you can overclock the processor on a computer. That means you can set the computer to run faster than it's designed to run. Mm. But, you, but you have to watch out when you do that because the machine can overheat and, and the, the motherboard burns out. and You've got a dead computer <laughs> on your hands. And it's a little similar, that's somewhat similar to what happens when kids spend a lot of time um, playing video games specifically. Uh, we're not really applying this so much to any other kind of practice, but playing video games results in a, um, a chronic firing of low-level stress and uh, of the, of the, the fight-or-flight syndrome, the general adaptation syndrome. What that means simply is that um, anything... Let's look at the term stress. Anything that is exciting to us, either good or bad, causes us to experience stress. Mm -hmm. And so, so what happens with kids when they get into hours of play is that they their brains release, their bodies release low levels, low levels of adrenaline that are um, are expressed in any stressful, you know, reacting to any particular stressor. These low levels of adrenaline um, uh, cause a cascade of effects in the brain, uh, result in the release of corticoid releasing factor, and other neurochemicals that actually, over time, erode um, the structures in the brain and specifically erode um, the memory structure, which is the hippocampus, mm. um, and cause other effects that as the brain becomes more dependent on this, uh, you know, low level firing of adrenaline, it also exhausts itself. So on one hand, there's dependence uh, that comes and that's the addictive reaction that occurs mm -hmm. when adrenaline hits the uh, central nervous system and dopamine is released. And when that neurotransmitter is released, um, the uh, basically the uh, phenomena of addiction begins uh, when dopamine starts building up in the brain. The brain becomes dependent on that neurotransmitter, which is the neurotransmitter associated with excitement and pleasure. So on one hand, you have a kid playing a video game and he's feeling really good. You know, his brain is just a wash in dopamine and he's, he's actually speeding in a certain way. And on the other hand, what he doesn't know, the price that his nervous system is paying for this is the buildup of these um, corrosive neurochemicals all around his brain. And what that results in eventually are specific effects, behavioral effects, changes in mood, changes in cognitive ability. Um, the ability to remember things, especially anything having to do with memory is, is powerfully impacted. And then things having to do with mood mm -hmm. is, is impacted. Um, similar to the way I look at it, you know, similar to what happens when people smoke cigarettes, um, mood goes up with a little, you know, hit of, of nicotine and then, um, mood goes down, you know, 15, 20 minutes later. At any rate, if this becomes a chronic condition, uh, these effects, you know, what we do grows on us. And eventually these effects start changing the kid's personality. Mm. And this is what I was seeing. I was seeing this kids come in with either uh, unusual amounts of aggressive, um, you know, feeling toward their parents huh. or, or feeling a sort of defeated and lacking confidence. It seemed to be as 
the longer they would be involved in this activity, you know, the, the more they would sort of foreclose on one pole, either fight or flight, you know, and um, uh, it, it was sad to see. And, and, and uh, okay, and then the other part of this that I noticed in my practice was that as the years sort of, you know, we're talking 2010, so 2011, I started really noticing this, 2012, 2013, 14. By the time I got to writing the book, um, I was actually seeing fewer kids coming in uh, with these serious mental health issues. And uh, because the kids were basically dropping out of life. And what happens when a kid, you know, just withdraws from school, withdraws from his, you know, the chronic screen use can do this and makes kids very isolationist. Um, a lot of these syndromes are sort of muted and hid. Uh, ADHD isn't as obvious anymore. Uh, a bipolar kid where before he had been, and I worked with a lot of little bipolars and I have a, a, a son myself that was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. You know, they wrestle every day to have a life and uh, to deal with this syndrome. <clears throat> and even that, I'd see less of this in my practice. And what I realized was happening, Melanie, was that kids were withdrawing from the world. So these syndromes weren't as obvious. Mm. That's why in my book, I spend quite a bit of time. I have a chapter or two in there on talking about the difference between, you know, how screen video game play specifically can hide or make worse a variety of childhood disorders from ADHD to autism, bipolar disorder, you right. name it. Right. That, I love that. That's in chapter three. And yes. it has, you have all of the um, parallels and it's very, very interesting. Um, and that is really fascinating. I didn't even kind of put that together, but I know that when parents are struggling with children who are um, dependent on their screens, um, I could see how they miss a lot of other things that are going yeah, on. Because they do. They you, do. you kind of, the kid morphs into another reality and, yes. um, they think this is normal. And I know the way my son used to say, or what he says now about his earlier problem with gaming was that he would do anything he could in the real world just to get back to the virtual world, which really was his real world. The real world right. is a nuisance. And I think what happens with families and people even um, that are listening today, our audience, is that um, we sort of create a new normal a as a parent and you find yourself um, acclimating yes. your life in your home, your, your family, you know, traditions, even the dinner hour. I mean, everything is, it just gets kind of changed to fit the the problematic child um and when this was happening in our home i had no idea what was happening <laughs> i just thought why is having a teenager so sad and so stressful and why are we yelling all the time about getting yes. off the game and how does the game get that much control and what you just described is exactly how the game gets that much control because it's taking over these parts of their brain and it is a drug it is acting it's a chemical reaction i i had no idea when my, with my oldest son i had no idea that there were actually chemicals being released when he was playing i don't know what i thought i just didn't know i didn't know what i didn't know yes so these things that you talk about in your book the decreased in attention span the increase in um this metabolism pattern that you see in drug overuse, the increase in short-term aggression. That was something that I saw in my house. Um, the reduction of brain executive function. Oh, and the increase in depression. I mean, my son, one year, he wrote that he wanted antidepressants on his Christmas list. I mean, hello, was this a red flag? <laughs> this yes. is normal. Um, the sleep disorders, he would stay up till two and three o'clock, you know, um, gaming, and so in the anxiety over social anxiety and not being around friends. So all these things are happening. And what you describe in this chapter is the mechanics of how that happens. You talk about kindling, explain that kindling effect. I thought that was 
really interesting. Yeah, kindling is the idea that uh, it's, it's been around for <clears throat> several years now in, in the psychiatric literature is that um, really, I think it, it, at first people first started talking about depression with kindling and they've extended it to talking about, you know, other mental states such as mania and hypomania, which are, you know, the opposite of depression, you know, feeling too good. Or in, in depression's case, you know, the, the whole syndrome of depression. The idea is that, um, again, the best way to put it is what we do grows on us. Mm-hmm. And in terms of kindling, that simply means that if we're if our brains get accustomed to a state of being such as low-level depression that's caused by, uh, you know, depression and anxiety, those two, those two syndromes go, are very close and rarely are, are seen as separate things. Those, when that happens, when uh, a practice, a kid is involved in a practice such as playing video games, uh, becomes, you know, develops this, this chronic low-level depression, um, the kindling effect means that there there is a kind of a groove uh, that develops in the brain between um, uh, neurons. As Donald Hebb says, neurons that fire together, wire together. And that to me is a, is a, a Know, bottom line for this whole book, mm-hmm. neurons that fire together, wire together. And what that means in terms of kindling is that once uh, the state is, you know, in place, say a depressive state, that unless uh, it's dealt with and treated, mm-hmm. um, the second time it comes around, it's going to get worse, basically, mm-hmm. the groove gets worse. And and the groove gets worse because um, as these toxic state, states stay in place, cells are destroyed. Um, cell toxicity occurs. And so, and you know, that happens with too much of anything in a certain way and definitely happens in any addictive practice. But I, I can also see it. People say the same thing about mania. I wrote a book on bipolar disorder and the uh, doctors tell us that if you don't treat mania, if, if a kid is manic and, uh, you know, this syndrome develops much earlier than we used to think it develops in my book, my, my book about it, I, I believe that it, I, I saw it in, you know, five-year-olds and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds, but more typically, you know, uh, middle schoolers will show, can show this if they're, if they have a serious mood disorder. Anyway, if the mood disorder isn't treated, mm-hmm. uh, it gets worse. Uh, get on everything early. That's got to be the the motto here, you know, nail everything as soon as you can. Yeah, it's got a lot. It's it's a much different effect than if an adult at the age of 25 or 30 picked up a video game for the first time. It's very different. Yes, yes, it is. And that's kind of what this kindling concept is about. That was really fascinating because I think things are, are really harder to undo, which is when you're younger, which is why you've got to get on it as early as possible. And they say with any dependency problem, early treatment, of course, is the, um, the best solution. And, um, the other thing I I read just briefly here, um, before we move on in this chapter was really a a good point. I think that parents need to, to know that depression in children looks very different than adults. So it's more of a chronic irritability. Yes. So we as parents think, well, my child's irritable. We don't really think of that as depression, but I thought that was interesting that you made that note there. And just to sum up what you've talked about so far, if I have this right, um, in very basic terms, you're saying that when, when kids are very immersively involved in this flow state of a video game, Fortnite and Call of Duty and all these games, that the stress level goes up in their body, which honestly, that of course is extremely easy to believe. I can't even watch those games without getting stressed myself. (laughs) And, but when you're a kid and you're running from your best friend, who's trying to shoot you in the head, I mean, you know, that's kind of stressful. (laughs) Um, and when that stress state continues in this chronic fashion after probably, I imagine even 30 minutes, an hour, a couple hours, and then you start doing this every single day, your body is dumping stress hormones in your system, which is causing a cascade of effects of all these other things that we see as parents. So that kind of sums it up, I think. A little bit. Yes. Yes, it does. 
And so what, just for this section, then what is your recommendation before we move on? What is your recommendation for a parent who's listening, who says, but my son's only eight years old and I I know I start to see some of this, but what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to take video games away from him? Isn't this, I mean, this is what boys do, right? What, What do you say to parents who are asking that question? Oh, I see. Okay. Well, the, one of the signature things about the book that I wanted to, I wanted to write about was the importance of values. So mm. family values specifically. So with regard to taking a kid who now is playing too much and uh, the mom or dad is going like, oh, what do we do with this? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to place that question in context that the best thing is, well, the best thing is not to have the process started at all, but that's not the question. The best thing is before that, uh, what, what, what looks like a good day for their kids, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a good productive day. And if those um, beliefs are inculcated in kids, they're going to have less problem with this time wasting, which comes with video game plays. But, but say a kid is, you know, he's sort of in that place and, uh, he's playing, he's beginning to play a little too much. You know, you take eight years old, I don't know, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are pretty immersed in it already. But I mean, one of the things for, uh, the, the one thing a parent can do is first, just put a time limit on it and say, dude, you know, we have an automatic timer that goes off after an hour and that's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of the, the, the neurochemical effect, the, the, cascade of stress hormones, et cetera, requiring the kid to take a break. I mean, that's just, I mean, this is a little thing, but it's an important thing. Mm-hmm. Like every half an hour, you got to walk away from your, your device for, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it is, you know, walk away, go out and, you know, bounce the basketball a little bit. You know, so they have to take breaks. Uh, yeah, I think the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends definitely no more than an hour without a break. Right. Um, but that sort of begs the question of like, why should they be doing it at all? Because once you're in that place where you're, you, you know, parents are going to be start giving ground. They're going to, it's going to get more and more and more, you know, like, oh, it's just an hour. And then, well, well, he's on it a lot more now. And like, and we can, let's, let's talk about what goes on with the psychology of families when this happens. But anyway, just to answer your question, Melanie, requiring uh, a child to take a break and not letting him be isolated in the dark in his room is super important. And just not even starting it really to begin with is not such a bad idea either, especially if you have multiple kids, there's no way that you can manage. Just speaking from a mom's view here, when you have four children, for example, it is impossible. You would have to have a full-time person managing all the screen time and the breaks and all that. Oh Um, yeah. But I I totally understand that, you know, after about 30 minutes, all this stuff really does start to kick in. And even for adults, we need to get up and take a break after an hour from our screen too. So we can imagine yes. only how much more that is needed for kids. Um, but I, I, but I just do want to make the point that this is not a necessary part of childhood. Like oh, I no. thought it was, I really thought that this was something that my son had to do. And I have learned now, and with my younger two boys, I have learned that no, 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 this is not necessary. So it's really up to the parent, of course. And um, what you want, your values, like you said, I think I love, I love bringing that in as well. What do you want your, your child, your child's childhood to look like? You know, you get to kind of decide um, most of that actually. So let's look at um, the next uh, point I wanted to have you talk about. It's in chapter four and the deepest wound it says is this identity development. I love this chapter <laughs> because I feel like um, we've missed this in our culture. We've missed the discussion about this. We talk so much about the medical science around the addiction and the dependent part of screens, but for the adolescent child that is maybe starting, let's start with the middle school since we don't have time to cover all the different ages but let's just look at what you say and talk about the um, middle school time, this transition that they're in. 
and how too much screen time, especially I'm thinking in my head, I'm thinking the sewer of social media is what I'm thinking (laughs) when our kids are spending so much time um, trying to develop these relationships online, which you point out very clearly that that's really not, you know, real. It's kind of counterfeit. The limbic resonance doesn't occur when we're on a screen and our brains are not connecting with other human beings. But let, let's just talk about what happens in this critical age, um, this transition time. I guess it's like from six years old to 12 year old. Um, what humans need and what's not happening and, and why is their identity getting, I guess, stunted is a good word. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I think it gets down to the fact that humans need other humans to develop normally. Mm-hmm. Um, humans that don't have other humans. Um, sort of interesting, I was side trip talking to a client yesterday who was self-diagnosed as a psychopath. No. Oh. Yeah, uh, an adult, and uh, no. This, in your office. <laughs> this, this person is 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 educating me, you know, giving me a lot of information. Like, because I mean, he's self-diagnosed and okay. he's not dangerous. There are a lot of psychopaths. You know, side trip here, but yeah. that aren't dangerous. They just don't have any empathy. They know that they're not going to do oh. bad stuff because they don't want to go to jail or worse. So, we we're talking about the this idea that what happens when you don't have other people in your life, you know, uh, what happens when you're isolated? Well, okay. So this talks about identity development and let me just focus on the process a little bit and why that's important. There are critical stages in the development of a person's identity and the identity is simply that by definition, an identity of a child's identity uh, is really the answer to three questions. Who am I? Who are all these others? And what are we doing together? And that is a, an extremely important internal narrative to have. And if that narrative is confused, if kids don't have a sense of who they are, um, they will all the syndromes we're talking about, but mainly a syndrome of dependence on on other people and not being able to stand on their own two feet, get out there, you know, deal with the world, make friends, deal with the, the you know, joys and sorrows of, of making friends. And the so if they don't have, Melanie, if they don't have the opportunity to do that, their growth is frankly uh, stunted. And what happens in that age that you were talking about, the 6 to 11 or 12, that's a major, and I'm going to focus a little bit more maybe on the 5th, 6th grade uh, age, you know, 10, 11, whatever. That is a time when kids are asking themselves, and these, these, these are occurring naturally, these questions occur naturally at that time. And it's basically, what kind of an adolescent do I want to be? You know, when I, they, they sense that they're going to be, uh, the human psyche sort of senses it's going to be drawing away from parents a little bit to its peer group. And so the question is, what kind of an adolescent am I going to be? And their, their values will form around that. Mm. And then toward the end of adolescence, in the early 20s, perhaps, another identity, you know, people go through another identity shift, which is what kind of an adult am I going to be? And um, there are ways that that resolves, you know, I'm going to be like my parents, I'm going to be different from my parents, I'm going to be, I'm going to put it on hold, whatever. But at middle, at the middle school time, if a kid doesn't have the opportunity to interact with other kids, he's spending, if he's too isolated, or if he says, my friends are online, and that is, they're not friends, they're fellow machine operators, you know, they're not they're not um uh they're not you know oh what you know we could get into what mm-hmm. what it feels like to have a friend there's no feeling in that it's very very sort of you know technical cognitive thing anyway yeah, there's um, no investment no one's invested there's no in, there time. there is no investment there is no investment there is no uh sense of you know we're coming to this play together and when we leave you know this is what i feel emotionally you know right. whatever there's none of that. And so when if that doesn't happen, a, a kid's growth is stunted. I'll give you an example. Um, I worked with a kid several years back. He's just I'm just channeling this kid right now. It comes to mind. Uh, 
his parents are, uh, when I was working with him, he was 14 years old and he was very isolated at school and depressed. And um, so, you know, man, this was when I was sort of getting a, getting a handle on what's going on with this video game stuff. And this kid, this kid was into Minecraft, it turned out later. I didn't know that. Nobody was, that's something else. As a counselor, for whatever reason, parents and kids don't really tell me, uh, well, uh, what does he do all day? You know, uh, he mm -hmm. plays when he, the minute he comes home from school, he's playing a video game. Anyway, this yeah. kid, I finally asked him, like, he said, nobody likes me at school. I don't have any friends. And he was a cool kid, smart, good looking kid. No reason why he wouldn't have a whole lot of friends, you know? And he, and he said, um, well, kids think, say, I just talk about one thing. And now he was going to a private school. Mm -hmm. So a lot of his parents, unlike uh, what I've noticed is that, trend I noticed that uh, some of the private schools actually spend more attention on the educational process and will really bring the hammer down on screen media much more than public schools will. Mm. But at any rate, in his school, he was the kid, he was a total screen addict. And his friends would just say, dude, you just talk about one thing, that's Minecraft. Mm. And, and they didn't want to hang with him. You know, they didn't want to spend any time with him. He was boring. And <laughs> It took me a while, to, and, and he was becoming more and more isolated. I'm going like, wow, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was really sad. And I've seen this, this 10, and, and then there's a load for this, Melanie. Some kids are going to be more likely to mm -hmm. go to this place than others. That's one of the, why in the book I talk about, you know, these different, you know, right. childhood diagnoses, if right. your kid's a little bit more anxious, if he's a little ADD, if he's worse. little... It's, yeah, it makes it worse. Like the pathway is a lot shorter once you have yeah. an underlying thing, of course. Um, yeah, and he didn't have, end of my rant here, he did not have a sense of who he was. You know, he didn't have a sense of uh, what he stood for, what his, de he didn't have deeds. And I don't know who was it that told me or that I was reading the other day that identity, it forms from social interaction and it forms from having deeds. And that just means you've done something. And if you're if you're like a 12 or a 13 year old, what does that mean? That means like, oh man, I was heavy into robotics. They, they put a medal on me, you know, for it. Or, right. or you know, I ran for this, I was in athletics, or I, I'm the smartest kid in Latin yeah, class or math, whatever. I've read these books, you know. Yeah. yeah, I'm, you know, people tell me how smart I am or how wise I am. This stuff doesn't happen when a kid is ensconced in a dark room for hours at a time, he's making, he's, you know, yeah. he's hurting himself. Well, and when you brought up Minecraft, the thing that comes um, to my mind is exactly in line with what you're talking about. He, he doesn't have anything to show for his time. Yeah. And parents are very enamored with games like Minecraft because they think their kids are being very creative and all this oh my God. craziness, yeah. but they're, they're not being creative. They're using the creativity of the game developer. He was creative, but not your child, but yes. they're building things, mom says. And I say, well, can he display it on the kitchen table? Maybe, you know, like when my kids go to school and they make something when they were little and they bring it home, or even now they, they actually are in art lessons. Now we go to a studio and they bring things home and that is an accomplishment and they feel their identity. Like after reading this chapter, I'm like, that's part of their identity too. What they create is part yes. of their identity. So it's who they meet while they're doing that, while they're interacting out in the real world. It's almost like a mirror, kind of like a reflection. Let me see yes. who I am by looking at who all these people are. Am I, am I the athlete? Am I the nerd? You know, am I yes. going to be the history yes. buff? You know, yes. or am I going to be the artist and all that? And so when your kid is playing Minecraft, like this patient you're talking about, He's putting an incredible amount of effort. In fact, I would say all of his effort in a very futile activity that is not returning a benefit to him. Um, it's it's sort of wasting time. And because in this age, um, somewhere you said, uh, I don't have it right. I can't find the exact sentence, but something that, that they're um, craving this low effort, high reward kind of activity. Anything that's easy is going to be a big temptation. So, because it's going to be a lot harder to, uh, be with people at this yes. age, because this is your job. It's hard yeah. you know, yes. to be around. You, 
when you when you mentioned the Minecraft thing, by the way, uh, Cynthia had a great example of that. I don't know if she shared it. I um, uh, have to ask her. Uh, listen oh, to the ahead. tape. What, what is it? Well, the the, the example was uh, asking a kid. Are you working with a kid that was into Minecraft and said, "Well, Minecraft, you know, because the kids at school were were studying Macbeth, you know, the the, mm -hmm. the Shakespearean play," and um, uh, he said, "Well, I'm." Uh, you know, I'll show you. I'm, I'm, Minecraft isn't a total waste of time. I'm going to use it to, to, to uh, you know, do a project uh, demonstrating my understanding of Macbeth with Minecraft. Yeah. And she said, okay, dude, you know, <laughs> sock it to me. Let's see what you got here because I don't believe you. <laughs> and, and he came up with a, you know, after several weeks, Melanie, of this, he came up, showed her this thing that he had, this, this this little diagram he had built oh. on his computer of like it was a little castle uh, a pitiful little castle you know out of the minecraft building blocks yeah. Yeah. and she's that's it <laughs> yeah they were they were they lived in castles didn't they you know oh my. and like oh my goodness so you just kind of go like no, there's not. You're so right. It it teaches you about the mind of the designer, and uh, and yeah. doing and 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 maybe side note here in my practice in Bellevue, Washington, I work with a lot of people from Microsoft and uh, other companies around here that build video games. And uh, what can I say? The cultures of those companies are very immature uh -huh. um, and very, you know. There have been some funny stuff on TV about it, but uh, it's just like one big uh, sort of animal house and a lot of those companies. And a, a lot of a lot of people go like, oh, that'd be fun to work at. A, well, look, the, the thing is, so you, you, you sort of have to be a crackerjack computer programmer to, to work in those companies. And that means you really have to study hard stuff to work there, even if right. you're going to have that right. attitude. So I don't know, a lot, and we could talk at some point like, who survives this? You know, yeah. that's yeah. been an interesting question for me when I work with kids in their twenties that actually have jobs, you know, that I'll say like, did you play video games when you were an adolescent? Some of them say yes, a lot. And I've become fascinated with how did you get through that? You know, how did you actually get a job at Microsoft? You know, right. how did, and so we can talk a little well, bit more about yeah, that. Sometimes but, that, that's a whole nother show yeah. that we'll have to talk about because what you need to be a game designer is not playing video games for, you know, 10 hours a day growing right. up that, that you can't right. get into that job by doing that. And the other thing that's popping into my head is um, with parents that have children that are very enamored with their, you know, games um, and their Minecraft and such is that they, this gaming um, community becomes their only community. And so yes. it's the gamer kids hang out kind of with the gamer kids and they're not even having relationships with them, even though our parents out there say, well, my kids are being social on their game. It's about, I don't know, maybe 20% social of, of what real social Lizing is when your kids have friends over and they come over to the house and you make pizza and you watch a yeah. movie together or something that's that's social that's about at the hundred percent but games are eh, around twenty percent from what I can tell I'm just making that up <laughs> I can that's tell good. they're yeah. not really being social so this this what happens is this um this circle or this cycle of so they're in their game they get better at their game so they want to game more and it yeah. gets harder and harder for them to relate to other kids, to relate to other activities, to create anything else, because it's this vicious cycle that yes. it's hard to break them out of. And that's why it's green strong. We talk a lot about just going cold Turkey when you take your kids off, because if right. they still have one toe in and they're still dipping into that pot, it's going to be really hard for them to fully immerse into the real world. Um, which is in this chapter talking about this identity development. Um, this is so critical. And, and what I what I know also about this, just from researching a lot about other types of addictions, is that if you don't get through these stages in a fairly passing with a fairly passing grade, <laughs> yeah. then um, then you end up in your twenties and you're still stuck, kind of back in this 
identity weird stage that, you know, in middle school, for example. And I think that's true. Yeah. I feel like there's just a lot of college kids that are kind of acting like middle schoolers because they never finished that stage. Um, Yes. And, and I think social media, you know, we were talking a lot about gaming, but um, social media is just in my, in my view is just like gaming. It, It has many of the same elements, if not all the same elements. And of course it probably affects girls a little bit more and people can argue that, but the reality is your son is probably going to be a little more attracted to the games, even though there are plenty of girls that game and your daughter is going to be, you know, pretty attracted to social media, even though there are plenty of boys that cannot put their phone down. Um, But when you enter the world of social media, George, with these kids, then they are, their identity development is not just stunted, but it's skewed because now they're looking at these weird people (laughs) um, who get all these popular platforms (laughs) on social media. And in their mind, they're thinking, oh, they have a million likes. So therefore I must need to be like them, you know? And um, that's where this identity as, as a parent, it is your job to structure how your kids are going to develop their identity. It is your job as a parent to um, really uh, filter who your kids hang out with. I'm a firm believer in that. Um, and, yes. and that leads us into our our final point I wanted to cover. And then I'm so excited to have you back and talk about more things. But the final thing today I wanted to cover is just quickly touch on this personality change that happens with screen dependent kids, because it's kind of, it's, it falls right in line with what we're talking about, their identity development. So if you're hanging around a certain type of people as humans, right, we're going to start copying and mimicking what they do. And, um, but then in chapter five, you, you talk about how becoming screen dependent changes a child's personality. This is fascinating um, to me. So just briefly go through these three personalities. So I see a mix of these three, and this is a, a great generalization uh, Melanie, in a certain way, but this is just based on my experience as a psychotherapist. What I notice the, the three the three ways this manifests: green media overuse, uh, and we're specifically video games now. And these three types, I'm not applying these these three types to social media, but video game use, what it does to the brain and what it does to the personality, you know, creates a defensive structure. So uh, an addict needs his or her defense, and people have favored defensive structures. People do different things to protect themselves or to assure their access to whatever they're, they're addicted mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And so the three types that sort of evolved for me were uh, the three I call the gangster, the golem, and the charmer. And the gangster uh, is, is when a kid develops a sense of false capability. There's typically chronic irritability with that. There's surliness. A lot of frustration and intolerance, blaming, lying, lack of remorse, use of obscenity. Um, these are the really, you know, kids that project a lot of hostile intent toward parents. And maybe this type is, uh, as a pure type, is, I don't know how research needs to be done on how often this manifests, but this is one type of kid that that really uh, takes it to the limit and uses physical threats Mm -hmm. of parents to ensure like you you did what with my, you know, my phone or you you did what with the router last night, et cetera. Now you're going to pay, you know, and that kind of, it's almost like a uh, rehearsal to be some kind of a malignant narcissist or something, some kind of really bad dude, you know, anyway, that's the gangster. <laughs> then, then we have the golem uh, and the golem is collapse. And this is another way, you know, and I think these are the way kids are, these are in lacking regular identities, right? That would yeah. form as a result of social interaction um, from their screen dependence. These are the identities that form. So first there's fight, there's the gangster, do it my way. Then there's, there's collapse, sort of flight, the golem. And the golem, I draw that term from um, uh, Yiddish mythology about, you know, it's, it's a creature that's sort of half stone and half person. And 
maybe like uh, the character in uh, in uh, the Lord of the Rings, yeah. Gollum, yeah. tendency to whine and collapse in the face of stress, a lot of social anxiety, depression, intolerance for novelty or challenge, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of crying. You know, you take the video game away from a Gollum kid and you're going to get a lot of tears. You're going to get threats of suicide. You're going to get a lot of guilt. Wow. So you get the gangster, which you're going to get the, the straight out threat. And the question is, like, you know, what's wrong with our kid? We never, you know, you're, you're not like that. I'm not like that. Why do we have a kid that's like that? Where'd they come from? <laughs> yeah, where'd it come from? And, and then finally, we have the charmer and the charmer. So we have the gangster, the golem and the charmer. And the charmer is a is that's a character I see a lot of. And the charmer just knows sort of that. Well, the, the parents are in their in their trance state that, well, we wouldn't you know, we feel guilty because we're both working and right. we shouldn't we should be spending more time with our kids. And so the charmer kind of uses that and he goes, you know, Oh, I know. Uh, life is hard, but he—he—he he, he seems to be. He gets by at school, you know. He's an A student. He's pulling Bs and Cs and Ds and a, a few Fs, but you know, he sort of gets by. He slides by. He does the bare minimum. He's chronically sleep deprived. He knows he doesn't have too many friends. Nothing really makes him happy, but he knows what to say to parents to make them feel good about. You know that he's doing just fine and mm -hmm. uh examples wow. don't quite come to mind but it's you know when you look at this yeah. this is just the way uh you know kids that play spend too much time in a video game uh are just mimicking what people who work in the you know addiction treatment community see every day they see these three types mm -hmm. and they're they're tricky types to you know it's tricky especially mm -hmm. the charmer yeah. uh especially the charmer that it's almost like as a therapist you know give me a gangster any day you know yeah. <laughs> um because you know we can i can encounter that in my my counseling room and i will the golem's a little bit more difficult and that's you know like really yeah. uh you're depressed and anxious okay i'm taking that seriously that's a serious syndrome right but the question i always come back to asking with all these three when parents come in with kids like this is like what does he do during the day? Mm -hmm. uh, what does he do after school? Because that's so important here to, to what's forming these personality structures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what is your, I mean, this, I'm just really taking this in because I think all the parents out there are immediately starting to figure out where their kids fit into this. And I can see mine was probably in that charmer section, but then yeah. we did have some outburst of this gangster mentality <laughs> too, yes. that would kind of be crossing over there sometime. Um, but I I'm going to hopefully not put you on the spot, but what in your book, you have a section that says from charmer to gangster, the impact of social media. What is that? What, how does, yeah. the, how does well, the, um, you know, that, that charmer personality kind yeah. of move into that. Cause that's fascinating to me. Well, I when you look at, yeah. When you look at a, somebody who is a, uh, has real presence with people. Okay. Let's just, uh, or a second, Melanie, uh, you know, the charmer, when somebody says somebody's genuinely charming because they're a real, they, they feel real and they're honest and they have real presence. Um, you know, those are why people, charmers make great salespeople, whatever, great marketers, whatever. Yeah. And if, and there are people like that. Okay. So, um, you can, if you're, but if, if that's a, a front or a defense mechanism or personality style, you're putting on to get what you want, which is access right. to your medium. And you're not really that person, you know, inside you're, you're, you're suffering all these things that, all the other video game addicts suffer, which is, you know, the depressive affect, the the mood drop and whatever. And then in, in a social media uh, environment, what can happen with that is the charmer, you know, the, the real personality comes out, you know, we got a, a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And the real personality can come often come out as like guilt tripping other kids, trying to make them feel bad. Um, yeah. 
uh, you know, a variety of manipulative strategies. You know, the charmer can be, I mean, I don't know, but it, it, it can actually, I think, be, in a sense, you know, depending on the kid, be more dangerous than the other two because uh, the charmer comes in under the radar. And right. so, you well, know, I'm not saying... They can, they can also use social media in a very manipulative way. Yes, even, yes. Even more than their game. Right. Know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Social media, that's almost another, uh, another, um, you know, toxic, uh, you know, phenomena that, that happens here. A little different from video game. It's, it's, it's similar to kids that get, you know, hooked on, on video games and and different in some ways, but, uh, yeah, the charmer is going to be, uh, when I'm working with somebody, you know, typically I work with the victims of people who have been predated on social media. I've worked with a few of those kids yeah. tend to be more girls than boys, but, um, uh, yeah, this personality type can, uh, can have a, have a role in that kind of, you know, cruelty. Well, and I, I'm not, you know, pointing to boys or girls, but I could see where the charmer personality um, could be found in a, in a lot of girls because yes. um, they know how to wrap their parents around their little fingers. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. And, oh, yeah. you know, when it comes to social media too, especially go ahead, go ahead. Well, you know what I see? Um, I, I, I don't know, but in my practice, I think what I've seen with girls is girl girls are, and I haven't worked with too many girls, you know, that are that are screen media addicts. But the the whatever their deal is, if they're hooked on their phone, you know, and they're hooked on their their Snapchat or they're hooked on their uh, Instagram or they're hooked on TikTok or whatever it is, uh, girls don't don't encounter their parents quite the same way as boys do. Boys tend to tend to be much more aggressive, whatever their style is here in encountering their parents, and girls will will just more. Uh, you know, collapse into a state of anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, which, which defies treatment. Yeah. You know, I've from time to time worked with like, well, she just doesn't get out of bed. She doesn't get it. Yeah. She's depressed. Mm-hmm. Well, what's she doing all day? Well, she's got her phone going all day long. We know she's on her phone all day long. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, she's depressed. I don't know. What can we do? We can't force her to go to school. That'll make her life more worse. You know, mm-hmm. so girls sort of ru- in my practice, I've seen them run that kind of, I don't know what you would call that strategy, but it, it can work for them. <laughs> boys is, yeah, boys, it's going to be more Melanie, like what you did with your kid, calling the army recruiter, you yeah. know, eventually, <laughs> eventually parents just go like, oh my God, you know. <laughs> what are we doing? I, yeah, what are we doing? You know, stop the madness. But Yeah, we but, call it in, in Screen Strong, I have a whole... Thing. I talk about the middle school girl phone speech is what we call it. And that's yeah. when the daughter stands up with this very nicely double typed spaced, whatever paper that she yeah. has created 10 points, why she needs social media. And you were so impressed with her ability to deliver this dissertation. And honestly, she should probably be in law school instead yes. of getting a smartphone. Um, but Parents get more kind of snowed, I guess, by oh, they do. Uh, some of the tactics that girls can use. Whereas your your son is going to just have a meltdown and say, "I want to play Fortnite." Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, you're be right. Like, oh, well, that's ridiculous. But then your daughter yeah. can kind of get kind of some manipulation going and get oh, her yeah. her desires met by doing it a little more charming. So yeah, well, you know, I always think that the girls develop their emotional uh intelligence develops before boys you know that's yeah. known and they use that to good they use that to good effect in a lot of ways uh being very resourceful. <laughs> right oh my goodness it's so confusing for moms though i'm just thinking of one i met her last week and she said but i i think my daughter is um so mature like i know i'm reading your stuff melanie and i've read your books and you're talking yeah. about this teenage maturity and how adolescents they're not mature and but she does this, 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 and so I think she's so mature. And so it it's kind of a a, a fake sort of um, f- facade, I guess, or something that you would call it, where your teen can look like they're 
more mature than they really are. I think the moral to this whole story is we have put too much in their path way too early and it's affecting their mental development. It's affecting their identity development. It's affecting their relationship with their parents. Um, And honestly, George, let's close with your thoughts about family values because it's affecting how they're going to leave your home with your values. Are they going to leave your home with your values? Are they even going to know what your values were if screen um, entertainment is such a big part of your life? I'm not trying to sound like I'm being, you know, exaggerating over it, but honestly, if the hours, you know, that your kids are spending every day on a screen, it really, if, if those hours aren't bringing them closer to your values and to your family, then they're taking them away from your family and your value. It's not neutral what they're doing. It's never a neutral activity. So there's this myth, I think, that says that, um, that you can't raise kids without all these leisure screens. And we are actually finding out now after all these years of experimentation (laughs) with our kids and honest research and science and people like you that are experts and that are writing books, we're learning that you absolutely can raise your kids without all these distractions and they will be perfectly developed. They will be fine. They surely will still have, we all have issues, but um, they're not going to be lacking some big hunk of their development, I guess, if they don't have video games and social media. Um, oh, no, you're so in, right. But in your book, at the very end, um, you touch on what a what what you are really describing as a screen strong family, um, what families that are that are close knit and have very vocal values, you know, what they do together. I think there was a little list that said they talk a lot about important things. They work hard and study hard. They do their homework. They like each other. I thought that was a really good one. Um, They they do things together. They play together and then they have fun. And those are the four things that you mentioned that I thought, wow, that's really what our life really does look like now. And again, we have bumps in the road, but we have so much more fun with our kids now than we did when we were trying to make all the screens fit, you know? Um, so anything else you want to say about that? Any, any tips for yeah. for parents, anything, any final tip that, uh, here we got these parents, George, they're at the beginning of this new year and, um, maybe they're taking our challenge. You know, we have a seven day detox and seven days isn't very long, but it's enough to get you started. <laughs> um, what would you say? What's a final tip? Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Melanie, for your, your talking about the, the values of families that are in which people are in contact with each other and contributing to each other's lives. I, you know, what occurs to me is, as you describe this, is that it, to a lot of uh, families, it looks impossible, you know, to, to have a screen-free home or a screen-managed home. You know, it, it looks impossible. But it's certainly not impossible. And in fact, uh, the uh, people who have started this industry, uh, Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. uh, was known to have, you know, he, he didn't permit his kids to have, he didn't give them the iPad, you know, and he right. said, uh, well, they don't use it. We limit how much technology the kids use at home. Same thing with Gates, Bill Gates around here. Yeah. He didn't let his kids have cell phones until uh, mid late adolescence. And he said that they, at their dinner table, you know, you know, and it would vary, I guess, you know, from day to day, but talk about something in your life that was important. So they had, they had these family rituals that are important or the, the guy, Evan Williams, uh, the Twitter founder in lieu of iPads, we have books. Okay. These are the wow. biggies and they know what they've created. Boiling down to what I would say, what I would like to leave uh, our interview here with the uh, words for parents is, it's a little bit of a bromide, but I'm just saying, say no out of love rather than yes out of fear. Wow. You can say no. You have to say no. You have to be in charge because your kids are, need you to be in charge. Mm-hmm. And if, if there's anything I'd like parents to carry forward is like, if you could if you could, you know, think forward in your kids' lives into their 20s and 30s, uh, they're going to thank you for saying no now. 
because you love them. But wow, I you love know, that. they're going to, they're going to thank you for that. I just, I just love that. I love that you say no now out of love instead yeah. of yes, out of fear. That is, that just yes. sums it up because thank I think you. every parent can really relate to that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom and your research and your work in this area. I just want you to know how much we appreciate it and, and how we will be very diligent in getting all this work out there as, as much as we can. And everyone who's listening, please, please tell your friend, just go tell one friend about breaking the trance. And it is not too late to join, of course, the book club this month, get, get four or five friends even to read this with you. It is so fun when you get a group of friends to read this type of a book um, with you together because you can have such wonderful conversations. You can let them listen to this podcast. And then again, join us on Friday, January 29th at noon Eastern time is when we'll be having George and Cynthia back to uh, answer your questions. So as you read through the book this month, jot us um, some questions on our Facebook page and we will surely cover those. George, it's going to be really fun having you back. (laughs) Thank you so much. For your time today. So um, don't forget to go to our Facebook page, the Screen Strong Family's Facebook page. And George, have a great day. Thank you for having me. Remember, we've got your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd, and stay strong. <laughs> <laughs>